Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with the editors of Cossacks in Jamaica, Ukraine at the Antipodes, Essays in Honor of Marco Publishing, published by Academic Studies Press in 2020. So my guests today are Alessandro Achille, uh, is lecturer in Ukrainian studies at Monash School of Languages, Literatures, Cultures and Linguistics. In 2015, he held the Eugene and Demol Shklar Ukrainian Studies Foundation Research Fellowship in Ukrainian Studies at Ukrainian Research Institute, Harvard University. He has published several chapters in books and articles in scholarly journals, including Zeitschrift für um, Slavistik, Slavistichny, and the Australian and New Zealand Journal of European Studies. His research interests include modern and contemporary Ukrainian poetry, Ukrainian cultural history, Slavic studies, comparative literature, and literary theory. In 2018, Alessandro Achille published his monograph on Basil Stus. Sergei Yakelchik is professor of Slavic studies and history at the University of Victoria and the current president of the Canadian Association for Ukrainian Studies. He is the author of seven books on modern Ukrainian history and Ukrainian-Russian relations, including the award-winning Stalin Citizens' Everyday Politics in the Wake of Total War, 2015, and a brief introduction to the current war with Russia, Ukraine, What Everyone Needs to Know, which was published in 2020. Dmitro Yusupenko is a research fellow at Taras Shevchenko Institute of Literature of the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. The area of his specialization and interests includes issues of textual scholarship and scholarly editing, digital editing as well. Literary Source Studies and Book History, Ukrainian Historical and Literary Process of the 19th, Early 20th Centuries. During 2008-2017, he published his monograph on Ukrainian novelist Boris Linchenko and a number of articles about the Ukrainian historical and literary process. Hello, um, Alessandro, Sergei, Dmitro. Pleasure being here. Okay. Thank you for the invitation. And thank uh-huh. you so much for joining me today. I know that we had to accommodate a lot of time zones, and Dmitro is joining us from Kiev, Ukraine, and Alessandro is joining us from Australia, and Sergei is joining us from Canada. Well, thank you so much for uh, being flexible with your time and with your schedules. So uh, the book that we are discussing today is, I would say, colossal. It's a huge uh, monumental work. It includes a number of essays, and it consists of more than 800 pages, including essays in English and in Ukrainian. Would you briefly describe this project? The editors unite three countries and three continents. How does this international representation of Ukrainian studies and Ukrainian scholars uh, and scholars who work on Ukrainian uh, topics shape the project? And uh, would you also comment on the title of the volume, which I found very intriguing? 
Okay, so maybe I I should start saying a couple of words about how we started working on this, how this project started. Uh, in July 2017, both Mitro and I were new in Melbourne. We, we had been in touch per email already, but we met in the kitchen uh, on our floor at, uh, at Monash University. And uh, we started chatting. One of the first things that, that I asked Mitro was whether he was interested in starting a big project with me. Uh, and that project was the uh, editorship of uh, a book in honor of uh, of Marco Pavlicin, and Marco Pavlicin was the person thanks to which both Dmitro and I were um, in Melbourne. Uh, Dmitro enthusiastically said yes, and we uh, we started this uh, long and I would say uh, rewarding journey. Uh, I guess. The following day, I sent an email to Serhi asking him whether he was willing to join us uh, and uh, replied straight away saying yes, it was a big honor for, for me and for Dmitro. Uh, I guess we were very, very happy that uh, Serhi said yes and we started working straight away. On the book, we sent out uh, a number of invitations, and most scholars that that we approached said yes, which was which was amazing. Uh, we were of course uh, we were of course overwhelmed by the number of positive replies that that we got, and we knew that we would have a lot of things to do. But I mean, that was for a very good cause, I guess. So we were very uh, excited. Uh, Dmitro, would you like to say a couple of things about the title? Because I think that that is thanks to you that we have such a beautiful title for this book. I think the two parts of this title, uh, one of them, Kosaksinia Maika, it was idea uh, by Siri because it referred to the prominent article by Marco Polition, Kosakiu Yamaiti, written in the 1990s and about postcolonial Ukrainian literature, about Yuri Andruhovich. Well, the second one only is was my idea. So it was again collaborative process in, in this uh, in, in titling of this book. And uh, yes, you you say uh, everything correctly. I just want to add that uh, it was from start a collaboration, not of only three editors, but of great big number of people. I think about one hundred, maybe, including uh, all reviewers, all editors of the language including sponsors, to, not to say the least. So, uh, and why these people were so um, ready to, to join the team, I think it's because of the person of the honored, uh, of the person of this first shift is honored. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Serhi. Yeah, and as it happened, uh, I was very familiar with that floor at Monash and that kitchen. Uh, because I had been there as a very junior research fellow in 1993-94. And that was really the start of my, the Western part of my career as well. So it was a no-brainer. So we need to do a, a proper collection, a very large one, appropriately large, because it reflects basically a colossal presence of Marco Publishing and Ukrainian humanities. And... Uh, it was, of course, a very long project and a project which required dozens of people to be working together. But ultimately, I think the result reflects Marco's personality and something wider as well. 
that is, I would try to formulate it as an interdisciplinary dimension of Ukrainian studies in the 21st century. Uh, because we went across the disciplines repeatedly, and even people who came from one discipline in particular wrote something which was basically balancing on the border among several disciplines. And, and I thought that that really reflected the essence of what Marco did and what, uh, and what the Ukrainian studies are today. We cannot afford to be locked in our narrow disciplinary boundaries. We have to go big. And this basically reflects Marco's own slogan and the way he managed to uh, build such a presence, not just in Australian Slavic studies, but worldwide. Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, I uh, would like to follow up on um, your comments about Marco Publishing. There are two prefaces dedicated to Marco Publishing, one in Ukrainian and one in English uh, in in this volume. And Ivan Zuba's contribution, uh, Publishing is represented as a, a perceptive literary critic. In um, Alessandro's introduction, Publishing appears as a mediator between different uh, cultures. So, um, would you um, just a little bit elaborate on this kind of combination of seemingly different descriptions of uh, publishing? However, there are some uh, there is some overlap here as well. But um, I think that it's uh, quite uh, interesting to um, locate uh, publishing in terms of some local narratives, so to speak, and in global narratives as well. Alessandro, um, since you the author of one of the introductions, would you address this question first? Sure. Uh, Marco started as uh, a Germanist. Uh, he majored in German. He wrote his PhD dissertation on uh, German literature. Uh, and I think he was planning for a career in German studies. Then he uh, he had the chance to, to become a U- even if, of course, at home he had always spoken Ukrainian, he knew Ukrainian la- the Ukrainian language, Ukrainian culture and literature very well. So uh, he, I think he was able to use the scholarly instruments that he ha- had acquired in his German studies to Ukrainian literature. And this, of course, happened in a period in which uh, it was very important for scholars to acquire to use, to make use of new scholarly instruments. It was the 80s and then the early 90s. And of course, uh, there were uh, a lot of names, a lot of texts, uh, a lot of approaches that were to be rediscovered in the use of Ukrainian literature. So I think that Marco was really the right person at uh, the right time. Plus, of course, we have to consider place. Australia is sort of liminal position, I would say. From the point of view of geography, of course, we can say that Australia is quite peripheral. At the same time, uh, Australia, like Canada, like other countries, have a very, has a very strong um, multicultural uh, environment. Uh, and this, of course, also reflects on its cultural environment. So being a Ukrainian 
Australian uh, with an excellent knowledge of uh, German language and culture and other cultures too, uh, really gave Marco the opportunity to be at the forefront of the renewal of uh, Ukrainian studies back uh, back in the 1980s. And this also explains what Sergei just said, that uh, we really needed to do something multidisciplinary because Marco's career, Marco's interest has have always been uh, extremely multidisciplinary. This explains why in this book we have contributions on literary studies, but also on linguistics, on uh, history, political science, uh, medieval studies, and, uh, and other areas. As for Marco, I will uh, add the fact that uh, in order for uh, Ukrainian studies to continue thriving in uh, in Australia, uh, Marco also uh, had to uh, to have a very important uh, institutional presence. I would say, so his engagement uh, both at Monash University and on a larger scale in in the Australian Academy in the Australian Cultural uh, World has really helped him consolidate the, the Mikola Zerv Center for Ukrainian Studies and uh, making it what it has been in uh, in the last almost 40 years. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dmitro. Maybe I would add about the second preface written by Ivan Zuba, about, written by prominent Ukrainian, she's the Satnik of six chefs. He is a close person to uh, Marko and um, Marco was very interesting in different uh, stages of his career in Shisti Desatnik as a topic and as a fate of these people. He meet, met with them in Kyiv, in Ukraine, in the late uh, 80s, in the 90s. And uh, Marco's own presence in uh, Ukrainian academia is really significant and again since 1990s. And uh, in 1997, the book called Canon uh, Iconostas, Canon and Iconostasis, actually was prefaced by Ivan Zuba. And that's why uh, we thought, actually, Alessandro thought again, it would be a great idea to ask uh, Zuba to write this preface. And uh, even since it wasn't that easy to him uh, in these circumstances, he did that. And um, he underlined the uh, importance of new views by Marco but in particular in Ukraine, because it was very fresh in the late 1990s. It's actually, it still remains fresh, and many colleagues cite his works, among others, this book. And that's why our collection, this collection, this first shift, is bilingual. It's because the contribution uh, by Professor Pavlishin to the field of Ukrainian studies is both important inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine. And unfortunately, to be an important uh, person in Ukraine, sometimes you have to write in Ukrainian because many readers are not that fluent in English language. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Sergei, uh, I know that this question somehow resonates with what you have already mentioned about Pablo um, Marco Pavlishin. Uh, would you like to add uh, something to uh, what um, Alessandro and Dmitro already mentioned? Of course. Um, what comes to mind is actually not not so much his interdisciplinarity and wide interest in literature, culture, and history, but perhaps the fact that Mark 
who represented the missing generation of teachers, which you couldn't get in Ukraine because the Ukrainian school of history and cultural studies was destroyed repeatedly uh, in the 1930s, uh, in the 1950s, and the 1970s. So by the time uh, new generations came uh, with Ukrainian independence as graduate students, they basically discovered that the role models were very often the same people who were broken by the Soviet power in the 70s and who were afraid to even mention the names of their own teachers. Um, and some of them were also people who were promoted by the Communist Party for a variety of reasons and came from managerial background somewhere. So they, they did not necessarily represent an idea of an intellectual. And that Marco is. And I didn't quite realize it when I first met him, what was so powerful about his personality. But this is really because um, he's a Galician intellectual who carries this uh, air of old-fashioned, old-world culture. But it happens to be the same link which is so missing in, in Eastern and Central Ukraine because there, we don't have a link to the generation of Hrushevsky, really. Right? Um, so all of his students had to denounce him but but with with Marco and some other people, I know that uh, the late Yaroslav Isayevich was also credited by, by many colleagues um, for, for being such a person. But of course, Marco Pavlishin, not only an old-fashioned Galician intellectual, but also a person with unbelievable sense of humor and self-irony, <laughs> which makes him at the same time old-fashioned and explicitly postmodern. Um, and that is precisely the kind of a person I haven't met in Ukraine, really. And I realized that I was missing a person like that in my life, that I needed a teacher like Marco. I needed to meet him at the time when I was basically, I just graduated, uh, I just defended my candidate no dissertation. So I was basically a very fresh graduate student. Um, and to actually see that it can be done you can be an enormously cultured person, a religious person, deeply committed to the Ukrainian community, but also always willing uh, to introduce this note of self-deprecating irony. All right? And uh, to say, as Marco did, there are so many sayings that people would remember um, about him, but one is my favorite, is always sitting at a dinner at some nice restaurant and pouring excellent Australian red wine, he would say, mm-hmm. so life in exile, in political exile is so bad. Right? So a person who could then transcend uh, a kind of narrow political definitions of how we imagine uh, certain generations of diaspora, how we imagine Ukrainian scores, could be uh, really a citizen of the world and at the same time a patriotic Ukrainian. This is what I found most stunning when I met him. Would you describe uh, the whole uh, volume, the whole project, in terms of postmodernist organizational structure? Well, um, we have contributions which range from uh, 15th, 16th century uh, up 
to contemporary literature, contemporary culture, contemporary issues. And uh, while Marco's focus has been mostly, not, not exclusively, but mostly on the 19th century and on the 20th century and 21st century already, uh, he also uh, wrote on and taught and paid attention to what happened uh, earlier. So we, we, again, we needed to have a contribution that would pay homage to all the areas, all the periods, all the kinds, types of texts that Marco has, has been working with. And as, uh, and as you mentioned, Natalia, uh, Marco has been uh, crucial in um, introducing uh, a postmodernist approach and the study of postmodernist texts in uh, in Ukraine in, Ukra in Ukraine and in Ukra about Ukrainian culture so this collection uh, had to have postmodern elements in uh, in itself it was something at the same time unavoidable and absolutely fundamental and uh, Marco is part of uh, of a group of scholars and he has uh, he has had a leading uh, role in this uh, in the discussion uh, of the link between postmodernism and postcolonialism so the postcolonial approach is also something that really had to to be part of this uh, of this book uh, this book contains contributions that uh, approach the uh, postcolonial paradigm from a theoretical point of view other contributions that try to uh, apply uh, to new texts, uh, types of readings uh, um, and approaches that Marco himself has been using in uh, in his scholarships in in the last uh, thirty years. So uh, I think that many of the, most of the contributions that that we uh, we have in this book, uh, in a way, as as is the case in a good fast shift, make use of Marco's teaching to uh, have a new look, a fresh look at uh, at some texts that uh, that can really uh, understood in in a very productive way using those techniques, those approaches, that wisdom that uh, that Marco has uh, has made us uh, familiar with. Mm -hmm. And postmodernism is, of course, mm -hmm. one one of those approaches, one of those areas. Thank you, Alessandro. Uh, what you just said made me think about memory as well. So the uh, volume itself by itself engages with uh, some memory about Ukraine, probably, but it also constructs some memory for the present um, generation um, at some level as well. And I would like to talk about this memory component as well in a little bit after maybe Dmitro and Serhii um, answer this previous question about postmodernism in this volume. So about memory, and uh, one of the fields where uh, Marco was especially successful is actually his uh, his role as a um, representative of Australian Ukrainian studies and representation of Australian Ukrainian poets, Australian association uh, literary figures, and in this volume we do have uh, this kind of representation because we have an article uh, by Sonia Metzak about Australian literary field and we can trace, we can see this his academic career in the bibliography.
because it started from the eight, uh, 80s and to the, to the last year. So it's a very huge and impressive list of works. And issues of memories, of course, important uh, on the pages of this festive in many uh, articles, in many pieces. And I would uh, also stress um, that almost every second also of, of the volume, of course, it's fast shift and uh, our colleagues have in mind whom this fast shift belongs to, but they cited his works and a lot of them actually about, as I would say, dozens of them. And uh, it's not... Um, it's not only about postmodernism. It's it could be from different from range of fields, and uh, uh, we do have some uh, suggestions for the authors what we are looking for. Mm-hmm. But it was even much broader that we are, we assumed at, at, at first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, said uh, he. I think there is actually at some level a thematic unity in the volume. Mm-hmm. We have not asked the authors. We have not prescribed any topics, but I think the majority of contributions in one or another way deals with the issue of constructing and deconstructing Ukrainian identity. Mm-hmm. And absolutely true that Marco introduced post-colonial studies into Ukrainian context. Um, and before I came to Monash in 1993, the person who was there before me was actually Tamara Hundorova, a, a big leading light now in, in Ukrainian literary studies, who then carried on the work of introducing modern cultural concepts into Ukrainian studies. So Marco's hand is behind lots of developments, which we would sometimes see as inner Ukrainian dynamics. but. I actually, when I received the book, I looked at it and realized that we are not thinking about having a united topic or argument, but we do have it in a way. Mm-hmm. Because so many authors deal with what is Ukraine and what Ukraine is not and how to think about Ukraine. And then, of course, as always is the case with the uh, first shift and you also get people who kind of intentionally want to provoke. And these are sometimes very interesting articles to attract the reader about the Galician sex, for instance. I am sure this is going to be a runaway bestseller. It will be circulated on all kinds of uh, networks. If you wanted to find out about Leopold Zachar Mezok and, uh, and, uh, and Ivan Franco, <laughs> This is, this is what you need to read. This is the book. We are, we are the source. But ultimately, even this is about the construction of what Ukraine is in the context of modern culture. Um, right? Um, can we apply to Ivan Franco the categories of psychoanalysis and, uh, and uh, sexual studies? Can we see Galicia as part of Europe? Uh, can we can we rethink the way we approach Ukrainian literary giants? So there is, I think, plenty for every reader, uh, whether they're interested in history, literature, politics, um, education, everything is pretty much covered. And I have to say that um, I'm not a literary scholar at all, but my own contribution was about a play 
And I thought that kind of fitting, like all of us are writing about something which is not really exactly our area of specialization, so I would do it as well. Um, and that also means that um, Marco's legacy in Ukrainian studies, he is going to be active for a very long time in retirement, but his legacy as it already exists is in challenging us. Uh, challenging to look for new ways of understanding Ukraine and Ukrainian identity. Uh, the new ways which would not necessarily be obvious, and but you also have to be an intellectual in Marco's mold, like a person who would write articles as handwritten. So he would sit at a table, grab a piece of paper, and start writing an article. And this is how he did it. And, and this is how he arrives at... Uh, Wonderful and important ideas, for instance, that um, in the 19th century, Ukrainian patriots were inspired not by one, but by two incarnations of the national idea. One was the Cossack officers and the Cossack legacy, but the other was the peasants and the difficult lot of the Ukrainian peasantry. So these two trends came together in the Ukrainian uh, uh, patriotic uh, cultural products. But in order to think big this way, I somehow feel you also need to sit at the table and just write by hand, at least the beginning of your article. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very true. Uh, your volume really offers a lot of perspectives and um, uh, you can have uh, a literary piece or you can have some historical piece as well. But uh, this point also made me think about one of those comments that Franco made when he was... Uh, looking for a topic for his dissertation and initially he wanted to write on Shevchenko and his advisor told him that it's too political and then he realized that everything about Ukrainian literature is political so to some extent I'm even tempted to say that Ukraine itself is a some sort of a postmodern project but not in terms of fragmentation but in terms of all these multiplicities which are included in the very uh, in the very gist, right, of uh, some Ukrainian context. Uh, I would like to um, uh, shift our conversation a little bit to the uh, maybe uh, international level and global level in terms of the Ukrainian studies uh, in general. So uh, in, your, in your opinion, what are the major challenges of Ukrainian studies today? And uh, because uh, I see your volume as engaging with this uh, multiple challenges, which any field probably um is facing today to this extent or to the other extent, but I, I think um, Ukrainian case is very peculiar here. I think that there are, of course, practical issues with which, I guess, potentially any university around the world is uh, is having to deal with uh, dwindling enrollments in, in the humanities, uh, financial problems, uh, shifts in in the idea of what education is and what education should be should education give provide us with a building in the original sense or should it just give us the tools to survive well to thrive or at least to survive in uh, in the world these are all challenges that i guess any every one of us is is uh, is really faced uh, with on the other hand, there are also more uh, scholarly problems, I would say. Uh, one of them, I guess, is when it comes to Ukraine and Ukrainian studies, somehow finding the right balance between the need 
to fully understand Ukraine, its specificities, its peculiarities, its multicultural dimension, its contradictions and its problems on the one hand, and on the other hand, to give Ukraine the opportunity to speak for itself and to regain its place in the uh, international arena. And sometimes, well, there may be issues doing these two things at the same time. On the one hand, one wants to give Ukraine the opportunity to speak for itself, but on the other hand, one also has to dig into its problems. And yes, but this is a, this is a challenge, but this is something absolutely fascinating. And I think that, as, uh, as was already mentioned, uh, many of the contributions of Fast Shift really try to show problems, show issues, show how actually complicated Ukraine and Ukrainian things are, and at the same time, of course, this gives uh, readers the opportunity to to discover something new and to uh, to see all the many things that that Ukraine and its culture have to offer. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Alessandro Dmitro. It's very important to support the multi-variety of topics uh, in writing about uh, Ukraine, in writing in Ukrainian studies, because if, for example, PhD students somewhere in Europe or in North America uh, would decide to write about Ukrainian nationalism, about Stepan Bandera, it would be easy to, to, to make this, to show the supervisor and wrote in some way even about maybe the same things. But uh, to write about early modernity, for example, it's not that easy. It's not only for Ukrainian studies, of course, but for Ukrainian studies among others, because we know too little about this period and too little was explained to the Western audience in English language. For example, one of our colleagues, Maria Grazia Bartolini, she's writing about that period, particular period, not Ukrainian Ukrainians in Ukraine, yeah? or, or they are writing, but they are writing in Ukrainian language and this sometimes very very good works are not translated. So uh, to support multi-variety, not only in gender, race of the applicant to the PhD position, but in these topics, uh, to, to give an opportunity to, to provide a, a full picture about Ukraine, not only some most bright, maybe, mosaics of this picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dmitro. Sergei? Uh, well, the global dimension is obviously double-edged sword. On the one hand, we can interact in real time uh, while being physically on different continents, uh, and that allows all kinds of collaborations that would have been really unthinkable uh, before the age of the internet. And that allows people in the West interested in Ukrainian studies go straight to the Ukrainian source. Uh, There are now language schools in Ukraine, which are enrolling students and community members from the West. And these people are not going to take Ukrainian language courses at uh, the Western universities because they go straight to the source, right? Um, And it's also good for people studying the Ukrainian society to be able to directly contact with the subjects of their study without the need to take an extensive and long trip. Now, on the other hand, it also produces a very interesting effect of 
everybody is suddenly deciding that they are the experts on Ukraine, especially when Ukraine is in the news, um, especially when Ukraine becomes an issue in American electoral politics, uh, then to just it surprises actually us to see how many people are suddenly on television, on the radio, explaining the Ukrainian situation who probably never been to Ukraine to start with, and they don't know the language or culture or don't even perhaps understand the the, the biggest issue uh, dividing Ukraine and Russia. So for the profession, then, it is a challenge and an opportunity, a challenge to uh, keep your ground and to argue that you do need the traditional uh, disciplines in order to become fully proficient in Ukrainian politics and culture and history. So you do need the necessary training, the old-fashioned one. It would not basically help you to have a few Skype chats with somebody in Ukraine and then write a book. But on the other, of course, it's also the opportunity to basically put ourselves into the limelight. Tell the society which wants to find out about what is this thing with corruption in Ukraine, tell, explain to them very carefully the nature of the corruption and how the struggle against the corruption going on and how um, President Trump was actually using Ukraine for his own political purposes. And then he failed, actually, in, in trying to use it. Um, so it is an opportunity for Ukrainian studies. It's also an opportunity in a sense that this is about culture. This is about language, like the infamous phone call between the two presidents is about how they understand um, politics, how they understand what you can ask another person, what you cannot. What should your response be if you don't even understand what, what the other president is asking you? So you do, need, you, do need, you do need an expertise here, which is only produced by, by our model of Ukrainian studies. But then, of course, our model of Ukrainian studies is evolving because the humanities are uh, in difficulty as it is. Um, and arts, uh, depending on how they are classified at uh, various universities, we, for instance, are in the Faculty of Humanities, but uh, most of the Canadian universities would have the arts. Uh, so there is a part of a larger battle, a battle of the arts and humanities for relevance, uh, proving, proving to the world that you need them uh, in order to have a rounded education, in order to be a good professional in any field. And this this crusade, um, for me, is something connected uh, to Marco Pavlishin's own life in the academia. The need to constantly show that, yes, Ukrainian studies are important, and yes, you can do them with the most sophisticated conceptual instruments. And yes, we are going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Sergei. Thank you, Sergei. I uh, wanted to go back to this comment, uh, which was mentioned by Alessandro uh, in response to this question. And you mentioned something to the fact that uh, the um, that probably Ukraine also has to dig deeper, right, into its uh, culture, into its uh, uh, history, and to understand um, what uh, what actually constitutes uh, its history and its background. And it made me think about silence and about all those probably um, um, history events or cultural events which 
which are forgotten today for many, many reasons, for historical reasons, for political reasons. And I'm thinking about this uh, comment. Uh, I love this comment, which was made by Oksana Zabushko during one of her interviews. She said something to the fact that in Ukraine, there is a lot of silence. And um, there is some sort of... uh, uh, not lack of desire, but uh, some difficulty to speak up, just to even deal with this silence. Uh, because there is silence and there are a lot of things which are forgotten. But the um, um, line between remembering and for forgetting can also be very, very fine. Uh, so um, I guess what I want to ask is, since we have literary critics and we have historians in our conversation today, uh, if uh, I was uh, to ask you, what's that the most important thing which, in your view, is forgotten and should be somehow rediscovered today? What what would you say it is? So maybe it's somehow connected with traumas, maybe uh, uh, some traumatic experiences just uh, make this conversation very difficult. Uh, and that's why we have a lot of silence as Oksana Zabushka says. Well, first of all, I would say that uh, going back to to our edited collection, we have one contribution which deals um, explicitly with with the, the the issue of silence, but we also have at least another one which, in my view, deals with trauma and the overcoming of silence in a way. So we have that by, uh, by uh, Maria Zubrecka on silence in Shevchenko's poetry, but we also have Olena Haleta's uh, contribution on uh, Euromaidan poetry. Uh, and uh, so her contribution, uh, other studies that, that are emerging uh, at, uh, at the moment uh, on, on this particular topic are particularly important, I would say, because they represent an attempt to give voice to exactly those voices that try to uh, overcome the uh, silence that might lead us to forget many of the things that Ukraine has uh, has had to deal with in uh, in the last decades, and uh, I think that the idea of giving voice to things that uh, had been either forgotten or silenced is also something that we can observe in Marco's especially in Marco's scholarship, especially. In, uh, in his early scholarship. So, for example, the uh, edited collection, the very short but extremely dense and interesting um, collection of essays that he published on, on Basil Stuss, which in my case was absolutely instrumental in developing a scholarly interest for Stuss and then writing my dissertation on him. Uh, of course, these that's the... Uh, the seminar and hence the the collections that he, he published basic uh, based on that seminar in the early 90s was absolutely crucial in uh, giving uh, both readers and the scholarly community the opportunity to start digging into to start rediscovering one of the greatest voices in not only in Ukrainian I would say but in well at least in European uh, poetry of the second half of uh, of uh, the 20th century. 
And in doing so, Marco uh, also somehow enlarged and reached our our view on Stus. Stus was known as uh, a fighter for Ukraine, for its language, for its right, for its future independence. But of course, he was also a great poet. So he had his own voice in a way. And well, thanks to Marco, uh, Stus was, uh, was rediscovered not only, well, again, as a political fighter, but also as uh, a voice, a poetic voice, a writer. So uh, I would say that uh, in a way, again, and th- this may be a sort of a, scholarly, of a scholarly issue and something that Marco himself wrote about on several occasions. When we deal with Ukrainian culture, we always need to sort of strike a balance between recognizing the uh, specific uh, literary cultural uh, features of the phenomena that we are researching, but at the same time, we cannot, we should not forget their broader political context, political environment. And so we basically have to rediscover two voices at the same time, the very specific voice of a single text of an author and the larger voice, uh, collective voice, if you want, in which those uh, um, cultural phenomena were originated, and again, this is something that that Marco has written a lot about, and something that that we we are now able to to approach from a scholarly point of view, thanks to to, to his contributions on this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Alessandro. Uh, if you're speaking about silence of particular maybe cultural appearances and phenomena, I think we do have to think about silence of particular texts, which still is unknown because they were lost or they were repressed and they do not come back to Ukrainian culture. And in 1990s, it was kind of period of rediscoveries of this forgotten or forbidden texts. But uh, that period ends. And nowadays, people, I think many people think that uh, all Ukrainian literary classics are represented in publications and we can take it from there, for example, from edition of Stu's, and it will be there. But uh, there are variants of this text, and many of these texts were not published still. For example, in this uh, volume I wrote about uh, Mykola Kostomarov, who is better known as historian, as a Russian historian and Ukrainian historian, and his Ukrainian original was lost, and one of the first English uh, translations of Ukrainian prose uh, was not published since the beginning of the 20th century. So that was one of the first uh, examples of experience of understanding of reading of Ukrainian literature about Ukraine, and uh, it wasn't republished uh, whether in Ukraine or in, in, in Britain. So we do have to come to bring back this text because a lot of them still uh, still are not in, in, the, in the cultural discourses. And actually, Marco uh, did a number of such work, textological even, uh, for example, letters of Orha Koblanska, a prominent Ukrainian novelist who wrote both in Ukrainian and German language. So sometimes we do need this archival type of work, and Marco was especially successful in this type of work as well. Even from Australia, he aimed to find these primary sources. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and uh, when we discover or when we bring back yeah, those uh, texts which were either lost or even uh, maybe suppressed, oppressed, and uh, therefore forgotten, they will bring not just new texts, right, but uh, they will bring new light uh, to what already was known, and they will um, illuminate those different aspects of what um, we, to, to, to which we were uh, already exposed. Um, uh, said he? Well, I would uh, actually continue this uh, line of argument um, to say that uh, I think Marco Pavlosian's great contribution was that he was writing seriously about the late Soviet Ukrainian literature at the time when so many people thought it didn't make sense. It was just basically kowtowing to the authorities and the dissident voices were silenced. But no, he actually wrote about this intermediate space, which you're not quite a dissident, but you're not quite an official writer, but still you're building Ukrainian culture in a way. And that allowed a much richer figure of the 1960s. And now that I think about it, his writings about Australia and about the Ukrainian uh, emigre culture in Australia really belong to the same genre because he was documenting the period which otherwise would have disappeared. And if I'm allowed to give you a Canadian example, I think we've totally lost uh, by now the rich documentation and memoirs on the role of Ukrainian theater in Canada, which was seen as one of the main uh, pillars of Ukrainian identity during the interwar period, before World War II. But of course, most plays were not published, very few memoirs published, uh, libraries dispersed by now, and it's now becoming impossible, actually, even if we wanted to write about Ukrainian culture in Canada in the 1920s because you wouldn't be able to say much about the theater, and yet we know it was so central. And so when Marco wrote about uh, poets in Australia, like Zoya Kohut, my favorite Ukrainian-Australian poet, he did it not only in order to show that post-colonial studies can provide a very nice clue. But he was also acting as a chronicler of that generation, of that culture. And if you were to read his texts on the 1960s in Soviet Ukraine and on the 1960s in Australia, you would actually discover lots of continuities. Because ultimately it's about Ukrainian culture in certain conditions, and actually difficult conditions. Of course, in Australia, there would be a political freedom and freedom to publish. But there would be a very limited um, audience, and especially the audience of your peers who could seriously comment on your work. And so he understood that. He understood that very well. And, and he thought that in order to be a member of this community, he would need to start documenting it as well. And I also often think that the fact that there are scholarships uh, at Monash, for instance, in, at the library, which allows, allows uh, scholars from Ukraine to come and work there, this actually preserves the link which would keep Ukrainian studies in Australia relevant for Ukraine itself. And there are, of course, similar programs in other countries, and in Canada, the Yeltsin program, and elsewhere. Because 
we sometimes think of silences as the imposed silence or perhaps the suppression of memories, such as the experience of Ukrainian slave labor in Nazi Germany, the Osterweiter, right? And that experience was recovered because um, oral history made an appearance in Ukraine and Ukrainian uh, historians were able to interview a significant number of Osterweiter, many of them women, and to produce very interesting work informed by the contemporary Western notions of gender studies and um, oral history and such. But also, I mean, we need more of that. We actually need to, to prevent the lacuna from emerging, not just to fill in the lacunas that are politically determined. They, would be, they will be filled in anyway, just because the Soviets didn't want us to talk about it. We will talk about it. But also, I think we need to assume responsibility for the culture of our own community. And that was a big lesson for me in my life from Marco Pogleshenko. You, you think globally, but you act locally. And, and every, every year when I show up at the Taras Shevchenko concert here in Victoria, I think of him, of <laughs> seeing him perform. I think it was very, very shortly after my arrival in Australia. And he gave this brilliant, humorous, uh, ironic at some level, and kind of sublime at a different level, talk about Shevchenko. And everybody in the audience was thrilled, sometimes for different reasons. And I thought, well, so you have to be anchored in your community. You should not allow your community to become a white spot, right? Um, whether it is for political reasons or for the reasons of assimilation and lack of interest in the acquisition of culture. Um, so I think for our generation, the, the task is actually not to allow any more lacunas mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. to emerge. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about this comment that you made that sometimes silences are not imposed, but um, we just choose silence. And I see this uh, volume as uh, breaking that silence, as uh, being active in... Um, just giving voice uh, to multiple uh, to multiple participants, so to speak. And the uh, um, project is bilingual, and I think that it's very important and it's very significant, and uh, I can see some political gesture in its bilingualism. Well, of course, this, this reflects Marco's own experience as, as a, well, multilingual, but mostly basically bilingual in, in, in his everyday life. So, yeah, it was something that we were very, very keen to, to reflect through, through this volume. Dmitro? As uh, Alessandro said, uh, I, just, I was thinking about this title of Ukrainian dramatist Ihor Kostetsky, Blizniata Szczezustrinutsia, the twins will meet again. And it's kind of opportunity for actually twins from uh, people inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine, scholars from many countries, to see their contributions written in both languages, mm-hmm. written simultaneously and sometimes without knowledge, unfortunately, from Ukrainian perspective. From Western perspective, there is a problem of looking for something worse because there are a lot of production about literature, about history in Ukraine, but it's not that easy sometimes to find these worse details. So this volume is kind of opportunity to kind of guidance, not only for students, but for even experience scholars to find themselves in this academic field of Ukrainian studies. Right, right. And uh, Sergei? Yeah, and also to add to this, uh, that was a refereed um, edited collection. 
So we wanted intentionally uh, to referee both the articles in, submitted in English and the ones in Ukrainian. We submitted them to the same mechanism. It was important for Ukrainian scholars to be able to have a refereed article in a Western collection. But it was also a symbol of this global collaboration in Ukrainian studies because um, I never thought of this, for instance, as Ukrainian uh, articles in Ukrainian to be read in Ukraine. No, not only. They will be read by, by people in other countries as well. And the same for the articles in English. It's an increasingly uh, common field in which your colleagues, wherever they live or work, are going to know both languages. And this is also the field in which uh, we would want to have copies deposited at uh, major research libraries in Ukraine and perhaps uh, some elsewhere in Eastern Europe too. Uh, because this is a contribution which shows the state of Ukrainian studies now. And the state of Ukrainian studies now is it is uh, transcending the limits of Ukraine and publishing in Ukrainian. It's, it's already entering the world stage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in, uh, it's some sort of a, um, a project that maintains this, uh, I would say, international dialogue or establishes or promotes international dialogue. Mm -hmm. Well, um, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Dmitro, Sergei, Alessandro, for this uh, conversation. And uh, I, again, congratulate you on this volume, a colossal and monumental um, a volume that uh, uh, offers uh, multi-directional venues for exploring Ukraine, for exploring Ukrainian issue, issues, Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian history. Thank you so much. Thank you for talking thank to us. Thank you very much, Natalia. Today I spoke with Alessandro Achille, uh, Sergei Yekelchik, uh, and Dmitry Yusupenko about uh, the volume that they edited, Cossacks in Jabeka, uh, Ukraine and at the Antipodes, uh, Essays in Honor of uh, Marco Publishing, which was published by Academic Studies Press in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>